you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Do you love your work? Is that something ridiculous? Do you think it's really possible to love your work? Isn't work just a bitter pill, just a curse, something we just have to endure so we can get it over with, so we get to Friday or get to retirement, quit this stinking job? Well, work can be more than that. We're going to be talking about how to turn your work into something that's enjoyable. And if you can't make it that, then go find something or create something. Life is too short to endure work that is not enjoyable. This is Dan Miller. We're going to be talking about work that you love. This is the online 48 Days radio show. 48 Days coming from a book I wrote a few years ago, 48 Days to the Work You Love. And that continues to uh, lay out the principles that I think are important for how you can, in fact, look at yourself, figure out how you are hardwired, what kind of work that would be a match for, and then how to find that or create it so that you do spend your days doing something meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Each week, I go through the questions that are submitted by you, the listeners. We pull out some that are more interesting to kind of help us all as we research, figure out how to work through these issues, the challenges that we have. Yes, the workplace does have challenges. We've got a lot of things happening in the workplace today as we're going into the new year. A lot of concerns about what it's going to bring, but you know what? The bottom line is we all have opportunities. The the things we need to be concerned about are the things that we are doing, the things that I'm doing, the things that are you're doing, not who's in office in the White House, not what the economy is doing. Those big picture things can get us discouraged. I talked to a guy this morning who said he was coming into our Wednesday morning meeting and he had the radio on for about 10 minutes listening to one of the one of the uh, angry talk show hosts, and he he decided, you know, he didn't want to start his day like that. Now that I understand, I encourage you not to start your day listening to the angry talk show hosts who are telling you the sky is falling, everything's going down the down the toilet. Nah, if you fill your brain with that, guess what? That's the kind of things you start to see. You start to believe that that's true, but you can choose a different kind of response. That's what we're going to be doing here. Here's some of the kind of questions we're going to be dealing with today. You know, I'm going to have kind of a theme for today. And it's something I heard Ted Turner say a while ago. He was being interviewed and I'll, I'll break this down for you a little bit. But the theme is I wasn't losing. I was learning how to win. So I want to have that as a theme for today's show. I wasn't losing. I was learning how to win. And you'll see how you can apply that to experiences that perhaps you've had. Here's some of the questions I'll be dealing with. Dan, I've accepted the call to ministry. All right. Well, look, at what does that mean? How does one continue to get customers to buy their product or service? Dan, I believe that what's holding me back so far is my fear. How should I get started in the public relations field? Here's one common malady for guys. I'm hearing a lot. My commissions as an independent health insurance agent broker are diminishing. Dan, should I buy a $10,000 franchise? Well, let me take that. I wasn't losing. I was learning how to win. I saw Ted Turner being interviewed on CNN and the interviewer asked Ted how he kept going when his sailing team 
you know, kept losing year after year. And then his baseball team was in last place for four years. Of course, they did then go on to win the World Series. But without any hesitation, Ted said, I wasn't losing. I was learning how to win. Now, you know, it's just a different way to frame an experience. You know, how many, how many times do you see somebody who's in a job they hate or, and they're convinced that that's been a waste of time? Was it really a waste of time or was it part of the process to get you to where you are today? If you had a business failure, have you lost everything or do you now know more about winning in business than you ever had? You know, I know that my own experience in having a business disaster a few years ago opened my eyes to a whole lot of things that I do now that have allowed me new successes that I probably wouldn't have experienced otherwise. I mean, I thought I knew, knew how to do business and in doing it like I was doing it, ran into some obstacles, but then when I crashed and burned, it opened my eyes. It made me go study deeper. And I figured out some things that are a whole lot easier ways to make money now without having to have some of the things I thought were a necessary part of business. Now, part of those were, I thought if you grew a business, you had bigger buildings and more employees. Well, I figured out there were ways to grow businesses where you have no employees and no buildings, which is pretty cool to know at least that you have that option. So, if you just got fired, uh, believe that you were learning how to win. If you bombed in your golf game this weekend, understand you were learning how to win. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, think that you were learning how to win. You know, if last week's receipts for your business were only $300 and your expenses were $500, just believe that you were learning how to win. Now, obviously you can't go on with that for a long period of time, but see the interim process as just that a learning experience you are learning how to win a whole lot of things can be framed in that way you know sometimes i i had a young guy recently who contacted me and said man i hear guys like you and dave ramsey talking about you know you've all crashed and burned at some point it seems to be an inevitable part of ultimately becoming very successful and he's saying things are going too well for me. You know, should I set up a failure experience so I get it over with and out of the way? And I laughed. I thought, ah, you know, don't do that. You don't, you don't need to go looking for it. It'll find you. Trust me. But usually it does come in that way. We have some failure experiences, but if you reframe those where it's not the ultimate termination, but it's just part of the process of getting to ultimate success you can see that you are learning how to win. Now we got some events coming up. I want to just remind you of going into the first of the year here. We got a lot of people asking about events here at the sanctuary in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, the first one we've got coming up will be in January and that's our coaching with excellence. I, I was talking with a friend this morning. He said he was in a meeting yesterday of seven people in the room and ended up five of them consider themselves to be coaches which I laughed. I said, yeah, it's easy to be a coach. It's kind of the hot thing right now. Everybody's a coach. Well, and you can be a coach, but the end of the day kind of reveals if you are in fact a coach, you can call yourself a coach today. But the question is, can you find clients who pay you money to coach them? If you can, then you are in fact a coach. If you never find somebody who thinks you're worth paying, then you're probably not a coach or something else. But if you want to be one of those who find where people find you 
that you have something of value to offer and they pay you a lot of money for that. Those are the kind of things we discuss here in the Coaching with Excellence program. We help people build their businesses, help you develop multiple streams of income so you have income coming in from five or six different places rather than just one. I mean, if you want to be a coach, to just find enough people who pay you week after week after week is challenging. But now in my own business, I mean, I, I started out as a coach. I was coaching a lot. I was coaching five or six days a week. At this point, I coach about one or two days a month because in that practice of coaching, I discovered a whole lot of other ways to leverage my intellectual capital in ways that would generate income. You can do the same. Those are the kind of things that we emphasize in the coaching with excellence event that we have. Check that out. The other hot event that we have here, and I think we've got three of them scheduled for 2012 is right to the bank. People who want to write something. Well, again, a lot of people write something. I had somebody this week submit something to me where he wanted me to promote it for him. And I said, well, who are you? You know, I can't find anything on you. I've never seen anything. You don't have any kind of presence out there. You don't have any kind of uh, blog that you're doing. You don't have a podcast. You don't have a newsletter. You don't have a website. What are you trying to do? Just writing well isn't going to do much for you unless you are building some kind of a business from that. That's what we do in Write to the Bank. Help you take your ideas for writing and show you how you can, in fact, use those so that they do generate significant income for you. Writing has served me very well. I love the process of writing, just in the process of finishing up a book manuscript that's due in less than 30 days now. I love the process of getting it all together and submitting it. And you never know what you're going to get with when you're working with a publisher. There's no question about that. They may say, oh my gosh, this is not what we were thinking at all. And I've thrown some things in. I've structured this one in a way that it could in fact elicit that kind of a response. So it'll be interesting to see, but I love the process of writing. And if that's something that you think you would enjoy or already enjoying, but you just like to create more income from it, join us for our right to the bank event. Well, Paul from Alberta, Canada says, Dan, I was enjoying your podcast this morning. Heard you say you're trying to come up with a name for your new book. And I had mentioned that a working title is wisdom meets passion. What do you think of Solomon's golden rule? Anyway, thanks for what you do. Well, thanks for this submission. Paul Solomon's golden rule is not a bad name. I'm sure we'll go through 50 possibilities. When I write a book, I don't start with the title. I start with a concept. I know what needs to be in there, but then I write the content and usually it's in writing the content that the title appears somewhere within the context of the writing itself. When I put together a little daily devotional that now is known as the rudder of the day, uh, that happened to be just one of the 91 little anecdotes that I put in there. So I didn't start out with that being what the title of the book was going to be. But when I got to that one and saw how it developed and it really kind of shaped the concept behind that, you know, I wanted people to read positive little anecdotes, inspirational, pure, clean, optimistic kind of things starting the day. Well, that fits well with the rudder of the day. The rudder of the day we're told is the first hour of the day. So we pulled that out and made that the title, but it was only in the compilation of the material that it appeared that it came out as a title. So that's what we'll do. 
That's uh, you can do that. Now, ultimately, you need to come up with a title that is engaging because that's what people respond to most. Yesterday, I was working with uh, my buddy Pierce Mars on his speaking presentations. Well, he noted that for my speeches, I have really interesting titles like Hold Fast to Dreams, the title of one of my speeches. Well, that comes from an old Langston Hughes poem that starts, Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is like a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Well, that's a very graphic visual image, and so I use that line, hold fast to dreams, as an introduction for that particular speaking presentation. Is now a time to hold fast to dreams, or is now a time to just be realistic, to hunker down and be practical and give up on our dreams? Well, you know where I'm going to go with that. I think now is a great time to hold fast to dreams. Another one I have is, the glory of man, it, the glory of God is man fully alive. Well, again, that's a quotation. So a lot of times I'll use a quotation and that could be the title of a book. So if you want to make a presentation or you're going to create a product or write a book, you know, look for things that have some kind of a hook that inspire you. And that's what you want as a title for the work that you're going to do. All right. Now here's, here's one that th- this is a real common situation. And so I just pulled out one, one of many, but this is kind of typical of what I'm hearing a lot these days. Now this comes from Wayne and he says, Dan, I've accepted the call to ministry, but I feel my call is to reach out to others about having a purpose in their life. I'm also a potter and would like to incorporate that into my speaking and offer pottery with inspirational messages on it in my speaking events. Do you think this would be a good fit? Any suggestions or feedback would be appreciated. All right, now let's kind of break this down a little bit. Dan, I've accepted the call to the ministry. What does that mean? What does that do to set a person apart from somebody who accepted a job offer at Microsoft or Google? Now, now I know, I know I, I'm, I'm playing the devil's advocate here a little bit because I know where people's thinking go on this. They, they think that if you accept a call to ministry, that there's something supernatural happened. God spoke to you in a very unusual kind of way, and you're not going to give up everything you are trained and talented to do, and you're going to go off in another direction because it is somehow a more godly calling. Now, again, you could probably note my sense of not being a real fan of that line of thinking. I mean, it's, it's real common these days that I hear from somebody who's been unemployed for a very long period of time. And so they ultimately decide, Ooh, I'll go into ministry. I don't think being unemployed for a long period of time is God's way of telling you to start a nonprofit or to go into ministry. Uh, the people that I see that are most effective in ministry have already proven that they can make money in the real world. And then they can fund any good work that they happen to be drawn to. I don't think we should make this artificial kind of dichotomy that, okay, you're called to ministry. What that implies then is, well, the rest of us out here haven't been fortunate enough to get a particular call from God. So we're just left with these ordinary jobs like being brain surgeons and attorneys and plumbers and electricians and landscape designers. No, there shouldn't be that kind of distinction. I think we're all called to ministry, however you want to define that. And what we do work-wise is what we're most gifted at. So then that is our application of that. 
See, my fear, Wayne, is that when you say you've accepted the call to ministry, my fear is that now you're going to expect people to donate money to you to allow you to do that. That somehow what you're going to do is a higher calling and more godly than any business that makes money could possibly be. Now you say that you feel your call is to reach out to others about having a purpose in their life. Well, I happen to feel very strongly about that. I speak, coach, and provide resources to help people find their purpose in life. But I don't ask people to give me money so I can do that. I think that's an unrealistic model. Now, now just think about the, the process here that you're talking about. So let's say that people give you money because you're in ministry. They get nothing except a tax donation if you're 501c3. You know, if you're a nonprofit, they get a tax donation, but they get nothing in return. They give you money. You provide services to people to help them find their purpose in life. They have no investment in it, no skin in the game because you're a ministry. You're just giving to them. I think that's an unrealistic model all the way through. I think everybody gets hurt in that model. No one wins. Why not just create a model where the people you'll be speaking to will be helping to pay you for that? That is not unrealistic. I do a lot of my speaking in churches and I have a, just yesterday I was working on refining them and you can go to under uh, on the 48 days.com site. You can go to about, and there's a drop down there and you can go to book Dan to speak and it'll drop down. And it'll show you the topics that I speak on. It'll show you that one particular package would be that I would speak in a church on a Sunday morning, which I do a lot, speak in a church on a Sunday morning. And then in the evening, we have essentially a town hall meeting where there may be a group of churches that come together and we meet in a regional medical center or some kind of neutral meeting area where people come. I may do like 30 minutes of inspirational talk on something. And then we just open it up and we have questions for an hour or so. It's just an outreach for churches to use, to make people know, let people know that they really are concerned about what's happening in the workplace. Cause that's obviously what I talk about, but that's the kind of package that I do. Typically I may include 50 copies of no more dreaded Mondays and 50 copies of 48 days to the work you love in that kind of package. And that, that kind of presentation typically is about $8,000 for me to go speak in the morning hang around, maybe go to lunch with some people. And then in the evening, we do another kind of town hall meeting and I give them a hundred copies of books. That's about an $8,000 project. I don't go and do that. Now I'm not saying that I never do. Sometimes there are situations right here in Nashville where sure, I'll just go show up and do something. And I obviously do a lot of rotary and uh, Kiwanis club meetings and things like that, that are just civic organizations. But when I go speak somewhere, I mean, that's part of what I do. That's part of what my work is. So people pay for that. I go to a lot of Christian universities and do that kind of thing. I just spoke to a group of executive directors for retirement centers. Well, that's my ministry. I'm helping people figure out their purpose in life. But I don't expect other people to pay me, to give me money rather, so that I can just go do that and not charge the recipients. I think that's an artificial model. So yes, I think it's great that you can speak and include your work as a potter and the illustrations from that. Man, what a, what a great visual 
thing to bring into a speaking presentation. But I think you need to create an economic model for how you can do that and how you can meet your own needs in doing that rather than thinking that because of that, it's more godly and people ought to give you money. I think you'll be disappointed in that. I mean, yesterday I talked to a young man who's just has one more semester of, of college. And I said, well, what are you going to do then? He said, well, I'm going to go, go to China. I'm going to raise support so I can go live in China. And I said, really, what are you going to do in China? Well, I, I just like being there, man. I've been there a couple of times. I love being there. I love the culture. I want to live there. I want to be maybe on a university campus, maybe teach English over there. And I thought, well, all that's very binding. Why would you raise support to do that? Why would I feel obligated to give you money so that you can go live in China because you think it's a cool place to live? I mean, I'm very supportive of that. If you want to go there, fantastic, go there. But I don't think that connects to somehow thinking other people ought to give you money so you have the privilege of going to do that. Now, I know there's a lot of issues here, and I, I tend to be um, pretty adamant in my feelings about some of this, but, but a lot of it comes from the fact that I've seen so many people who have been disappointed in going down this path. They have felt like they had a call to ministry. And so because of that, their expectation was that other people were just going to rain money on them so they could go live a life of leisure, you know, in another country because they were doing good or godly humanitarian work. Well, I wish it were that easy, but it's not. And so a lot of my feelings come out of having worked with people for many years now who thought they were going in that direction. And then they end up very frustrated and discouraged. I'm just saying, create a better model right from the start. You can do that. You can live anywhere you want to in the world. You can do any kind of humanitarian work that you want, but I guarantee you there are better ways to figure out how to do that than assuming people are just going to throw you money at, throw money at you because you're doing something godly. Well, here comes a question from Rob in California. It says, Dan, I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. I think the biggest fear that keeps a person from starting a business is how does one continue to get customers to buy their service or product? What are the best ways to keep the sales coming in? If one is unsure if the sales will be there four months from now, then why start? I should just remain as an employee because I know that I have a higher chance of still getting paid. Well, Rob, I don't like the way you're playing the odds right now. You are selling a service every single day you show up for work. If you think that you are guaranteed a paycheck because you have a job, you're living an illusion. I mean, I've talked to a whole lot of people who were used to work for AT&T and General Motors and a lot of other wonderful companies who thought that they were going to get a paycheck just because they showed up every day. No, you have to sell yourself. If you don't have a valuable product or service to sell, you're on the line. You're in jeopardy every single day. You are interviewing every day that you show up. A lot of people think, well, I interviewed, I got the job. Now I can, you know, turn my brain off. Because I got the job. No, you're interviewing every single day. If you can't convince the company that what you bring to the table has value for them every single day, your job is on the line and you're going to lose your job. So if you are now, here's how we can frame this Rob with your question. You say that you're 
afraid of having to sell a product or service, you know, four months out, why don't you just keep a job so you don't have to do that? If you decide that you are a bookkeeper, so you're working for a company, they pay you a paycheck every Friday, boom. Now let's say that you lose your job and you decide there's a whole lot of companies out here who are not large enough to have a full-time bookkeeper, but they could use you maybe one day a week or two days a month or whatever it happens to be. And there in fact are a whole lot of companies like that. So you now end up with 10 client customers Again, they don't need you full time, but you take care of their work. You're doing your highest leveraged area of competence you're using when you're at their companies, because that's what you do. You're a bookkeeper. So instead of wasting your time doing a lot of things that don't fit you well anyway, which is likely to be the case when you're working as an employee, now you're just doing what it is you do really, really well. And because of that, people, people pay you really well. I mean, typically when you go from being an employee to doing something on your own, where you're using just your highest area of competence, people are going to pay you three to four times hourly what you're used to being paid as an employee, just the way that it works. So if you're a graphic designer making $15 an hour working for a company, when you go out on your own, you're probably going to make 45 to $60 an hour. That would be pretty typical. So where do you have more security? If you have one customer or if you have 10, and that's the way you have to look at it in today's environment. If you are an employee, you have one customer. That means if one person there decides they don't need you this afternoon, you're a hundred percent out of work. What if you have 10 customers and one of those decides they don't need your services any longer? How much of your work have you lost? You've lost 10%. You have to replace 10%, not a hundred percent. That's why a whole lot of people are figuring out there's more security, more predictability, and more money in having multiple customers rather than just one. But you are in the selling process no matter what. Now, I, I am in the situation that you're describing that would give you a lot of fear. How do you know that four months from now you're going to be able to continue selling people products and services? Right? Well, so let's say that in looking at what I'm doing here, I have to sell products and services to people on an ongoing basis. If somebody buys 48 days to the work you love, let's say, okay, they go out and get their next job. They may not need anything from me for another 10 years. Wow. Is that a scary thought? That means I had a, a I had a $15 interaction with somebody. That's all I'm going to get from them. And now I've got to go find somebody else. Well, theoretically that's true, but by having books, and by doing podcasts and newsletters and blogs and speaking and coaching and consulting, those kind of things, it creates a broad net into which come a whole lot of activity. So right here during the holidays, let's say, no, I'm not doing any coaching, no speaking, no live events, no traveling, nothing during this period of time for about 30 days here. Does my income go to zero because I'm not out here knocking on doors? I'm not picking up the phone and call? No. There's so much momentum that is put into place from what I've done over the last few years. I can go anytime, day or night and look at our, I can watch our bank account. I can watch deposits coming in, ka-ching, 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 
every minute, every hour of every day. Now, to me, that's a whole lot more security than having one company, one boss, one supervisor where I'm getting a paycheck. Now, I know I've taken a little more time on this than I normally would because it's such a critical issue to understand. I'm not making a case for everybody going out and being an entrepreneur. Please don't take that away from this. But you need to be realistic about understanding the broad spectrum of work opportunities today and the fact that being an employee is a diminishing model. I mean, we know that it is. That's not just guessing. We know that's a diminishing model. We know that we are now right at the point where about 50% of the American workforce are employees. The rest, the other 50% of the American workforce. No, I'm not talking about anything that has to do with unemployment. Certainly we're not going to have 50% of the people unemployed. I'm talking about if we take a hundred percent of the people who are working, only 50% of those are employees. The remaining 15, 50% are consultants, contingency workers, independent contractors, entrepreneurs, temps, electronic immigrants. I mean, all those new terms we hear coming out time and time again. So you aren't putting yourself at risk by putting yourself in that new 50%. You, in fact, are probably increasing your security. But don't ever think that you stop selling your products and services, even if you're an employee. You are selling your service every day you show up. Well, this is Dan Miller. You're listening to the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Hey, if you got a question you'd like for us to include in an upcoming podcast, I'd be delighted to do that. Just go to the podcast link at 48days.com. You'll see a little red starburst there, I think it is, where you can just click on that and it'll give you an opportunity to ask your question. Here's one. This comes from Germany, from Halid, who says, Dan, love listening to your podcast from Germany. I'd like to set up an online business selling products in Germany. Being a second generation German, I believe that, it, that what's holding me back so far is my fear. Even though I see massive amounts of opportunity, I find the legal system, the bureaucratic and detail-oriented way of doing business in Germany very, very discouraging and scary. For example, even in setting up a blog, I need to fill out detailed personal information in the correct form to avoid getting costly letters from letters who specifically scan these sites to make their own profit. Probably getting legal advice ahead of time makes sense, but then I could not just go out and test the waters without paying a fortune. What can I do? So again, Helen, you are in Germany and you see the obstacles of getting started in your own business there as pretty insurmountable. I'm not really sure why, especially when you talk about an online business. Online businesses pretty much erased geographical borders. I went on and checked a little bit to see if there was something about Germany that I did not know because I know lots of people in Germany who are very successful in their online businesses. And I pulled this right from the German government site. Starting a business in Germany is relatively straightforward. While there are formalities to follow the basic procedures and regulations of starting a business in Germany do not significantly differ from those in English speaking countries. German law makes no distinction between German nationals and foreigners when it comes to establishing companies in business. There are no restrictions on the repatriation of profits. Well, and so on and so forth. I don't see anything different from, I mean, you can be in Germany and you can have a blog as an example, that's hosted by an American company. You can be in Germany and you can do all your business on eBay. 
So all you do is plug into eBay to ship products from where you are. I'm not sure why it's more complicated there, but whatever it is, I would encourage you, don't let that be an insurmountable obstacle. Just work through whatever's required so you get past that, get that beyond you so you can be in business anyway. You know, if you go in Franklin, Tennessee, United States of America, if I go down to the Chamber of Commerce here and I tell them I want to start a business, I'm going to come out with a two-inch high stack of papers, forms and regulations, licenses and things that I need to do. It's going to scare me and I probably won't start a window washing business. But you have to realize those organizations are going to overload you with paperwork, but it really isn't that complicated. I mean, in as much as there are a whole lot of things and I, people, you know, come to me and say that they want to, well, they want to start a delivery service, let's say, but my gosh, they can't find, you know, somebody told them they have to have liability insurance. And so they can't find anybody. And now it's going to cost $3,000 a year. And I'm thinking, why would you need liability insurance? Why did you bring that up as a possibility? Why don't you just start the business and then just add the little things that you need to as you go along. So if you want to start a business, I encourage you, encourage people to get a business license. That usually comes from the county clerk office in wherever you happen to live. That usually costs 10 to $20 annually. So it's a very small investment. You get a business license. Then you can go to the bank. You've got an official business license. You can open an account in that name. Most banks require that you have a business license in order to start an account in that name. So do that. If you're going to buy products, if you're going to buy books as an example and resell them, you'll want to have a resale license that comes from the state wherever you happen to live in Tennessee, where I live, it costs $5 to get a resale license that again, that's, that's not even an annual, that's a one-time fee forever, $5 you get a a license where then you can purchase products. You can purchase things without having to pay sales tax. Then when you sell those, you collect the sales tax based on where you live. And then you do have to fill out a form and turn that into your state for the sales tax. But again, those are, those are not complicated things. Those are just very small, insignificant, simple things that need to be done. If you want to start a business, If you're going to have employees, then you need an EIN and that comes from again, the, the, the IRS, it's a government term employee identification number. If you're not going to have any employees, you don't even need that. You don't need that. So if you go in and look at what's required to start a business, you can see, you know, these 50 things you need to do. You need to have insurance. You need to have, you know, all these federal numbers. You need to file tax forms. You need to have an attorney local. Well, that's just usually more complicated than it needs to be. My encouragement is get into the game. And as things develop, as your business grows and is profitable, then you can add the things that need to be added as you grow in size and profitability. All right, here comes a question from Archie. Archie says, um, I've always been told that I would be good working with the public, but the other day I was chatting with someone on Facebook and she asked me if I'd ever considered getting into the public relations field. My questions are, do you know what that involves? Do you, as you know me well, think that sounds like me? And if so, and if I choose to pursue it, how should I get started? It does sound very appealing to me. 
Now, Archie, yes, I did see that you had a question on 48days.net and you've been communicating with some people there, Andrea Reynolds and some others about what this involves. And she's saying that you're such an outgoing, encouraging, uh, kind of cheerleading guy. And you are, I mean, you are the official 48days.net cheerleader. You encourage people like nobody I know. And it's a wonderful, uh, compassionate gift that you have. I'm not sure that translates into public relations work. Public relations work is extremely hardcore, competitive, cutthroat, because it is not just about warm fuzzies. It's about getting results. If I engage you as a PR person, as an author, I'm going to want TV and radio interviews magazine mentions or opportunities for writing articles, book signings that are set up, live events, speaking engagements, very tangible things. Those are the kind of things that I want to see happen if I'm going to pay you for public relations. So it's not just a soft kind of building brand awareness. You know, you help people talk about it in those terms. No, it's can you craft a PR release so that it gets, so that it generates 10 interviews for me. Now you can learn how to do that. And I've done PR releases that have generated that and more for me. You know, you need to learn how to do that. Now you can do public relations without going back to school and getting particular degrees. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not opposed to you doing that, but well, you know, the bottom line is in, in knowing you are, I don't think you're cutthroat enough to make make it work in the world of PR. I mean, I, when I released my last book, I retained a lady for PR. She has a golden Rolodex. She was a producer for the today show in New York for 10 years. So she has lots and lots of contacts. She got me interviewed on CBS, the early show. She got me on with Chris Matthews, uh, hardball, and she got me lots of high profile interviews like that. That's what I paid her for as a PR person. So you need to be really well connected and not just in your local community, but nationally, if you're going to be able to help authors do what needs to be done, authors are not going to pay again, just for somebody to be encouraging them. They're going to pay for specific results that they're going to want to see done. That's what PR is all about. Man, if you want to explore it, I mean, go ahead and explore it. Uh, if you see that you really can produce those kind of results, then absolutely people will pay you for your services in PR. Well, this comes from Doug. He says, Dan, I currently work as an independent health insurance agent broker in North Carolina because of huge cuts in commission, 50% or more ostensibly due to healthcare reform. I've had to depend on offering other insurance products to clients such as life, disability, dental, and appropriate supplements, as well as looking for ways to increase my Medicare age clientele. By 2014, the game will change dramatically to the point that I may no longer be able to make a living at health insurance, even though my clients greatly value my guidance through the maze. Most of the ways I know how to do marketing involve buying leads, which are very expensive. Seminars, which cost a lot and are not that productive. Um, in addition to insurance, I teach ESL English as a second language, three to five hours a week and enjoy that, but that doesn't pay career, career level income. 
any ideas to think this through would be appreciated. All right. Now think about insurance. Okay. There's a lot of people out there who have been in insurance for a long time, but think about what's happened in insurance. It used to be that you saw your insurance agent when you went to the hardware store, when you went to the little restaurant in town and on church on Sunday, you ran into them. Now that's not primarily the way insurance is handled. And I have lots of insurance programs where I have never met or talked to an agent because those things are presented online. It's very easy to do a quick analysis and comparison of different companies and rates and boom, there it is. I send in the premium. Also, there isn't the kind of loyalty. You know, people don't just keep coming to you because you've been their agent for 10 years. Know if they have a chance to save $3 a month, boom, they're going to change and go with a new company. So the whole industry has changed a lot. Most insurance agents that I know really are counselors at heart. They do a great job of showing all the options, you know, and helping a person make a good decision. But you have to balance how much time and help you can give any one client with the fact that you need to do 10 other presentations this week in order to make decent money. So I know some really nice insurance agents who know their products well, they're really considerate, they're available, and they're making $40,000 a year. And then I know others who are pretty tough to catch. They seem to be a little high pressure, but they're making $150,000 a year. I mean, in insurance, more than ever, you are selling products. It's not just your ability to help people understand for you to have the, the counselor's kind of heart. No, you make money by selling products. And you're right. Commissions have been cut drastically. So it's required that people who are making a decent living before now have to really ramp up their selling activities in order to maintain the same income. I think insurance is a really tough industry to be in right now. The kind of insurance that you're talking about now there, there's always going to be people there, but, but it's certainly not something that would have any appeal for me. Now I say that also with the understanding I love selling. I really do. I love selling. I love being sold to, and I love selling, but I would never choose to do it with insurance because I, I think it's extremely difficult to get enough potential there to make a decent living. I think there's a whole lot of things that can be sold that re that give you a lot better return than that. Now, you know, I, golly, I hesitate to hear myself say that because, you know, I've got an agent that I call at the drop of a hat when I want advice on things and he is available and he, I've been with him for many, many years. I don't want him to walk away from what he's doing, but I wouldn't blame him if he did. Because I know that he's struggling just because of the things that you're talking about here. Well, we got some more questions here. I'm going to grab a couple more here in this particular edition of 48 Days Online Radio Show. This is Dan Miller. I get the opportunity to come on here each week and talk about these kind of questions because uh, the, the 48 Days comes from 48 Days to the Work You Love, a book I wrote a few years ago continues to lay out the principles for how people can find or create work that's meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. If you've got a question you want to submit, you'd like for us to discuss on here, just go to the podcast link at 48days.com. Leave your question there. I'd be happy to consider it in an upcoming show. Well, Luke says, I've heard Dan mention repeatedly 
on the podcast about buying books that the publisher wants to get rid of. He mentions he has bought books for pennies on the dollar multiple times. I'm looking for inexpensive titles on woodworking, gardening, fixing things, primitive skills, other manual crafts, and basic life skills to offer to homeschoolers as after-school activities. I have a feeling there are a lot of these books that never get properly marketed, but I'm not sure how to track them down. Should I just send an email to all the publishers I can find that offer these types of books, or are there lists somewhere I can research as a starting point? I found a few websites that sell books like this, but they usually have only a few titles of each book. Okay, here's here's the deal. I'll, I'll share very openly about what I do, and I buy a lot of books like this. One of the sources I use a lot is bookcloseouts.com. Now, to start with, yes, you can just do an online search. There's nothing secretive about this. Anybody can do this. If you put in book liquidators, as I did a minute ago, I got over 5 million results. There's a whole lot of activity in book liquidators. There's, there's a whole lot of books out there that need to be liquidated. Books are worse than jewelry in the way that they depreciate. Most publishers, when they get behind a book, they're going to give it about 90 days of attention. Then boom, they're on to something else. So there's a whole lot of books that were printed where they expected that book. I mean, there are books by Billy Graham. I mean, I know a particular book a few years ago, they printed 250,000 copies in the initial print run because it's Billy Graham. The book absolutely bombed. I mean, two years after that, they had 240,000 of those books still left. Well, what do you do if the market hasn't received a book? You need to liquidate those. And those things can be purchased for pennies on the dollar. I buy a lot of books that I buy for 79 cents a piece. I buy a lot of little gift books like H. Jackson Brown Christmas Treasures or the little book of success principles, things like that. And usually they're like four ninety-five. I never pay more than 74, 75 cents a piece for those. Just watch for it, and I buy a lot of those out of bookcloseouts.com. Now, it's true. Sometimes they'll have a book that you really like, and it is only uh, 39 cents, but they only have two copies, so it's hard to get any momentum with that. I don't buy anything unless I can get at least a couple hundred copies. But you can find things like that. Publishers are not likely to sell directly to you as an individual. They just they, they deal with liquidators. They don't want to deal on a book by book basis with somebody. They want to deal with a liquidator who comes in and will take 50 titles because they've got a hundred copies each average of those. and They want to get rid of them all. So they don't want to deal with you as an individual. And ultimately that just means there's one more step in between. There's a broker in between, which is not a big deal because those guys can buy them for pennies on the dollar. You can then would deal with the liquidators. You can get them really cheap as well. And you can find things on all the topics that you're describing there. Absolutely. I've made a lot of money selling books that I didn't write, but books that were in liquidation, they had great titles, books like mompreneurs, books like how to make use of a useless degree. I mean, there are a lot of titles where I sold thousands of those, made a lot of money on those, I mean, typically I'm going to pay, let's say that I pay a dollar and a half for a book like that. I'm usually going to sell those for $8. Well, that's $6.50. I mean, that's more than a, an author is ever going to get in royalty on his own book. So that's way more than I get on my own books when a copy is purchased in Barnes and Noble or on Amazon. So we sell a lot of books. I mean, I just, I like the whole idea of buying books just like you're describing. 
Let me squeeze in one more here, Craig, from uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. Dan, in 48 Days book, you mentioned franchises and low cost. I went to franchise.com, found three cruise ship franchises. Which one did your friend do? I'm very interested. would like to talk to him first. I actually ordered info on about five low cost franchises under $10,000. I'd also like to do something real estate related. I also love farming nature too. Any way to put this all together? Well, probably not. I mean, I, I think you ought to have ideas that really fit together like a glove. If you're going to do multiple things, I'm a big believer in franchises. I mean, franchises just mean that somebody already proved the idea to work well. And so now they're going to show you how to do that. The franchise, I have a friend, a client who bought a cruise one franchise. He was a former airline pilot. He bought a cruise one franchise. That's what he and his wife do. Now with franchises, it's almost like uh, the insurance industry we talked about a minute ago. I mean, the travel age industry has reduced commissions dramatically. It's tougher to make a living just booking people on cruises than what is what it was a few years ago. If you're going to do that, then I say jump in with both feet. Really do that. Do that well. Do all the other things it takes to get your name out there. Let people know who you are. I mean, that's the way to make that successful. Sure, you can do that. A lot of good franchises out there, and and they're not all, you know, where it costs you half a million dollars to get started. There are a lot of them you can start for two or $3,000. But the cruise franchises, you know, typically tend to be about in the $10,000 range. Well, that music lets us know we're at the end of our time. This is Dan Miller in the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Thanks for being part of this growing audience. Hey, jump into the crowd, the growing crowd over at 48days.net. No cost to be a member, but those people are sharing ideas, helping each other develop the kind of work that we all are looking for here, the kind of work that's meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Hope you have a great week. Get ready for a great new year. This is Dan Miller. 